This week on the show, we show you FreeBSD support on the Framework laptop, that Win32 is the only stable ABI on Linux, as it turns out, why OpenBSD's documentation is so good, configure DMA for your mail delivery in jails on the internet hosts, introducing MuxFS, Grade 1C support on OpenBSD, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 472, Consistent Exit Code, recorded on the 1st of September 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find the online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. Hello, we are your hosts, Benedict Reuschling. And Alan Jude. Welcome. Hey, good to have you back. We like to bring you always the latest news from the BSD world, big and small. And we start with the headlines. And this one reads FreeBSD on the Framework laptop. A lot of people were expecting this. Yeah, I know a bunch of people uh, have these Framework laptops. Uh, and so it's interesting to see a report of someone uh, trying to use it. Mm -hmm. And it greets us with a screenshot of a Tmuxy desktop. Oh, i3 it is. i3. Okay. All right, here goes. Uh, thoughts. It starts with thoughts. Okay. Uh, it's been a long journey these past few months trying to find a modern, compatible FreeBSD laptop and getting it to work well enough for daily use, everything except for gaming. For the past few months, I've been documenting my journey using this laptop, then I left the lap framework laptop and switched to a ThinkPad X260 and then a ThinkPad X1C7. This gave me perspective on what is considered FreeBSD compatible. After experiencing what was compatibility and that what that meant, the work needed to get those machines up and running. I decided to come back to the framework laptop with that perspective and try to get FreeBSD running on it again in a smoother capacity. And they finally succeeded, they say. Everything isn't perfect, but it's pretty good and it will hold you until even better support comes out to the machine. I can now pretty much say that you can use this laptop in a production capacity for your everyday stuff. Okay, so they ordered the laptop on November 20, 2021, last year, and was marked as part of a batch 6. It's currently configured with one USB-C, three USB-A expansion cards, and they have an HDMI expansion card, another USB-C expansion card on the side in case they want to switch it up. So remember, the Framework laptop is actually intended to be uh, configured in a lot of ways, so you can switch things out. Yeah, and, and... it basically has four modules uh, where you decide what uh ports you want on your laptop and you know in this case they have one usb-c and two usb-a but they have things so they can swap out one of those usb-a ports for an hdmi or another usb-c and so on mm -hmm. and they use the usb-c port for charging primarily but also to connect the anchor power expand uh, plus seven in one dongle which has a variety of other ports not all of them working uh, this machine came with the Tempo 92HD95B audio codec for people that want to further identify that model and so uh, Intel Core i7 CPU, 2.8 gigahertz, 12 megabyte cache, and so on, 11th generation. Uh, memory, 32 gigs, 2 times 16 gigs. Uh, graphics, Tiger Lake, GT2, Iris XE graphics, storage 1 terabyte, Western Digital Black, NVMe, and Wi-Fi is an Intel uh, 6E AX210 No V Pro. This is getting more and more complicated. Uh, the display is glossy with 20. 256 times 1504 resolution. Okay. Yeah, it's a three to two aspect ratio, which is 
Interesting. Mm. Yeah, not my typical uh, kind of soup, but yeah, why not? Um, so after setting up everything on FreeBSD 13.1 stable, they lowered the scaling value to make the resolution bigger on the main display, and they also have the main external monitor connected over the anchor dongle's HDMI slot. Uh, the HDMI port on the framework itself isn't working for them. Okay. This is, uh, they provide the X, R, and R configuration when in dual mode, so that you can take if you want to have that. And a combination of 1920 times 1080 at 100% for the external HDMI monitor and 2256 times 1504 at 200% for the internal display is the sweet spot. Okay, and they've heard X11 doesn't support per display scaling like Wayland does, but the above R and R command is working for them. Okay, so system status overview. They provided a nice little table with things that worked, uh, were unstable or failed or have not been tested yet. So they start with graphics that works. Okay, including the 3D acceleration, but you'll need to compile the graphics DRM 510K mod uh, port. Okay, that's okay. For me yeah pretty standard for uh any intel laptop mm -hmm. and for the wi-fi uh they find that using FreeBSD's uh native iwl wi-fi driver is still pretty unstable and they were seeing a lot of crashes but they tried wi-fi box which is a mechanism to run a small beehive vm and hardware pass through the wi-fi to that and then route your network that way and they found that that's working very well uh, in the meantime while well, bjorn finishes up that iwl driver Yep, we'll get there. Then there's HDMI that has a failed mark. Um, the card is detected but can't output anything to it even though XR&R detected the DP3 port. Supported resolutions detected in XR&R for this display are also incorrect. And the same monitor works via the anchor dongle to, uh, through its HDMI slot with the correct resolution. They also saw this error which didn't appear when using the anchor dongle's HDMI port without the HDMI extension card connected. Hmm, okay. So sound works. Yeah. Intel DisplayPort get link train fallback values. Uh, and they say link training was unsuccessful. Hmm. So yeah, it seems like it's having trouble uh, setting up the DisplayPort bits. Yeah, yeah, something in there. Uh, they list sound and, uh, and the speakers specifically works. The headset works, uh, headphone jack, uh, microphone works, camera works with some additional uh, comments there. I just go over the main parts. Sleep also works. So this is... Um, Suspended yeah, resume. right, if you uh, close the lid. And hibernation has not been tested, as well as Bluetooth and the fingerprint reader. Since apparently... Yeah, I uh, think, uh, you know, hibernation previously doesn't have anyway, and then Bluetooth, uh, there's apparently a, a quirk space that describes what's wrong with Bluetooth. And fingerprint reader, and then, I, no one's using them. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the same for the ThinkPads? <laughs> anyway, um... With their anchor power expand, they could get the Ethernet gigabit uh, in an unstable way working. That's weird. I've, I've had some gigabit Ethernet USB-C drives work fine for me, uh, although I've not, you know, battle tested them per se. Mm. Just, you know, hooked my laptop up that way and, and had it work reliably. Let the bits flow. So they seem but here... that could come down to the specific Ethernet chipset on the other end of the USB. Yeah, probably. So they say it's so slow it's unusable, but maybe there's a change in the meantime. USB ports, wireless keyboard and mouse work, and HDMI work with that anchor power expand. The SD slot has not been tested, and the micro SD slot fails. Okay. Yep. And then they break down all the bits that were working and not with a lot more detail, and they have the full D message from their particular system, which could be useful 
uh, if you're looking for errors or seeing what else is going on. Yeah, so you can decide. You can, you can see their Wi-Fi box set up and everything, and they have the full output of PCI comp, which can also be useful to see uh, some of the devices that don't have uh, drivers yet. Mm -hmm. And so that's your uh, way of considering a new laptop in this category and how well it's supported. Again, patches are made, people are working on this, so some of these issues here may be resolved all uh, by themselves by now. Yep. Over to our next story, had an interesting one, uh, more from the compiler side, uh, where somebody found that the only stable ABI uh, on Linux is the Windows ABI. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, um, a new version of glibc was recently released, 2.36, uh, and people found that it broke a lot of video games now. Uh, so, a user did some bytes acting and found the offending commit that broke things and filed a glibc bug report, hoping they would revert the offending commit and get things working again. But it turns out that other things are broken too, and that wouldn't be that easy. Uh, and it's most likely going to stay this way, and you're not going to get a fix. And so, uh, especially for games, using the Win32 via Wine uh, ABI is probably the only way to keep things working on Linux. So getting into some of the details. Uh, so the ELF format, which is the, the format that binaries on Linux and BSD and many other OSs use, um, there are two different ways of providing the hash table of symbols, so that all the functions that exist in the binary so that you can find where to jump to. So there's the DT hash uh, symbol and then there's dt gnu hash uh, the first one is part of the original system 5 generic abi and is well documented and marked as mandatory as part of the elf spec and then the dt gnu hash is a newer and smaller and faster replacement that is not documented and is implemented in like glibc gnu ld uh, musil libc uh, lovm uh, mold which is a different linker etc and it's the subject of a couple of blog posts that they found and they linked to here. So it turns out it also doesn't provide the same functionality as DT hash. The GNU one is a bit different. To get the number of symbols, you have to completely parse the whole thing. It's worth noting that unless you are building uh, an ELF OS ABI none binary, uh, you're not forced to follow that generic ABI and include that uh, DT hash symbol. Glibc uses the ELF OS ABI underscore GNU, so technically uh, it not including a DT hash is fine. Uh, Glibc uh, was forcing having both sections for a very long time, claiming to maintain compatibility. And then that was recently dropped, and the bills instead rely on, quote, the defaults, and then we see problems here. So that led to the regressions. This problem was first noticed by rolling release distro users when games that used the EAC EOS uh, feature stopped working. Uh, so this is uh, part of uh, Valve's uh, Proton system for running games on Linux. There's also an open source project uh, that has regressed, a frame rate limiter called LibStrangle, and a bunch of other non-EAC games like uh, Shovel Knight are, have broken as well because of this change. These are only a few breakage uh, that users on more bleeding-edge distros found shortly after the release of glibc 2.36. I suspect there will be more broken games and other software once that starts hitting mainstream distros as well. So then they ask, you know, to ABI or not to ABI? So DT hash is not part of 
this ABI per se. Uh, so it's not an ABI break that they stopped including it. The lookup information is still there, it's just in a different format and you have to do it right to get it. Uh, and so whether or not to have that DT hash uh, table is basically up to the distributions. And you know, not having it maybe saves like 16 kilobytes on a binary. Uh, and that having that should not be mandatory if you're using the GNU version of the ABI rather than the generic one. So this is, they suggest you read through all the linked uh, discussions and develop your own opinion on who is responsible for what exactly. But personally, the author here shares Linus's opinion that changing ABI is okay as long as no one has noticed. But once it gets noticed, then it becomes a regression and we need to stop. Uh, once it's a thing people depend on, it becomes a feature and you can't just uh, pull the rug out from under people. Sadly, not everything can be easily modified or accommodated or recompiled. Uh, shifting the problem downstream onto the distros is also problematic and adds to more fragmentation where, you know, if you imagine that your valve is like, well, it works on this distro, but not that distro and on and on, it gets out of hand very easily. Um, so it says, the author says they know that uh, DT GNU hash is a thing for like 16 years now and most distributions have switched to using it and only it by default. Uh, for those 16 years, it was glibc who provided the compatibility and overrode the defaults for everyone. And they never were an easy to use, you know, easy to spot deprecation warning. So it's also unrealistic to expect every ELF consumer to keep up with undocumented developments uh, in glibc. So glibc was providing this backwards compatibility for a long time, and then they stopped without ever giving people a warning, basically. Uh, so then they talk about why is this uh, hash style equals GNU the default? Uh, and basically, kindly by accident, uh, GCC's default behavior is to allow linkers to do whatever they want. The GNU linker itself defaults to both, while mold defaults to system five. So why most things are built with, you know, it's specifically overridden to be GNU only. And a lot of distributions, uh, GCC-V claims that uh, it was compiled in at the GCC compile time with, with linker hash style equals GNU. This seems uh, to be left over from the days uh, in the past where DT GNU hash was so young that LD's default was still system five. And so they changed the default to GNU. So it started including it uh, and distributions wanted to have the promised speed up that they would get from this. And now everybody's configure script for GNU is setting this and when uh, GNU libc changed what they were doing, uh, it suddenly exploded in everyone's face. Even though, you know, GCC had been doing it that way for a long time. But partly, possibly only because of basically cargo culting. Like it's, like it's a, something somebody said a long time ago and we've never had a reason to change it. Uh, but when glibc changed something, all of it went crazy. Yeah. Uh, and of course, this spreads even further. Clang does distro detection and seems to be trying to mimic whatever the distro was doing with their default GCC at the time so that Clang wouldn't be as different. Uh, which means across distros, the default in Clang might be different, which maybe is suboptimal as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. But they say, you know, they think that this whole situation shows why creating native games on Linux is so challenging and why vendors often, even if they go so far as to try, they do it for a little bit and then they're like, wow, this is terrible. Um, it's hard to blame the game developers for targeting Windows and relying on things like Wine for their Linux support. It's just much more stable and much less likely to break randomly or get hugely fragmented. 
Yeah, yeah. But if you have the gaming crowd against you, that's <laughs> not to be underestimated. All right, time for the news roundup this week. Uh, why is the OpenBSD documentation so good? Celine from the Data Swamp uh, website asked. We had as an interview a while back. But she keeps blogging and we like to cover her blog post. So here's the next one uh, with exactly this question. Why is the OpenBSD documentation so good? The introduction reads, the OpenBSD operating system is known to be secure, but also for having an accurate and excellent documentation. In this text, I'll try to figure out what makes the OpenBSD documentation so great. So uh, multimedia documentation. So here she provides a list of supports used to distribute information. First, email upon installation, man pages, website, FAQ, examples, commit history, and newsletters for announcements. So let's study them one by one. The first email. After you installed OpenBSD, when you log in as root for the first time, you are greeted by a message saying you received an email. In fact, there is an email from Theoderat crafted at install time, which welcomes you to OpenBSD. It gives you a few hints about how to get started, but most notably, it leads you to the afterboot man page. This man page is described as <clears throat> things to check after the first complete boot. <clears throat> okay, it will introduce you to the most common changes you may want to do on your system. But most importantly, it explains how to use the man page while looking at the see also section leading to other man pages related to the current one. Yeah, I can't describe how many times the see also section has led me to finding interesting tools I wouldn't have known to even look for uh, or other things like that. Uh, and then, you know, we get into it later on here, but you know, the example section of a man page is usually worth at least as much as the, the rest of the man page. Oh, yeah. I scroll down typically to that, see a couple of examples and then go into the details or just copy the examples and already have something to start with. Yeah, the interlinking between the man pages in the see also section is is quite important. Okay, then we go to the actual man pages. The man pages are a way to ship documentation with the software. Usually you find a man page with the same name as the command or configuration file you want to document. It seems man pages appeared in 1971. The man stands for manual. Uh, there's a Wikipedia page about man pages that she links there. The manual pages are literally the core of the OpenBSD documentation. They follow some standard and contains much in metadata in it. When you write a man page, you not only write text, but you describe your text. For instance, when you need to refer to another man page, we will use the tag quote, uh, uh, quote cross-reference, unquote. This rich format allows accurate rendering, but also accurate searches. When we yeah, so like this stuff was... Uh, that the kind of format that Manpage was written in was originally designed for writing these as like a, a physical book, like a textbook that you would have. Mm. Uh, and just having an online version is very helpful and makes it easier to update and so on. Uh, but it contains all this stuff to do the markup to like make certain words appear in a different font so that it's obvious that that word means something literal. It's like the name of a command or the name of a file or the name of a function, not just a word. Uh, and so, yeah, there's all this markup in man pages, which can look a bit daunting, but once you understand how it works, it's actually pretty simple. Uh, and although like all things Unix, it's, uh, derived to seem to save you from typing as if typing was the slow part of any of this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, when we refer in a man page in a text discussion, we often write the name, including the section like man and then 
in braces, brackets. I keep forgetting how they are named. Like parentheses. Parentheses, right. <laughs> oh, how could it be? Okay, man, parentheses, one, parentheses, closed. If you see man, that thing, you understand it's a man page for man within the first section. There are nine sections of man pages. This is an old way to sort them into categories. So if two things have the same name, you use the section to distinguish them. The example here is man pass wd, which displays pass wd, which is a program to change the password for a user. However, you could want to read pass wd5 in that section, which describes the format of the file etc pass wd. In this case, you would use man5 pass wd. I always found this way of referring to man pages very practical. Yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, basically it can disambiguate when the command, uh, you know, there's a command in a file with the same name or whatever. Uh, by looking at which chapter it's in, you know whether it's talking about the command or the file, or you can specify which one you want to read the manual about. Mm -hmm. On OpenSD, there are man pages for all the base system programs and all the configuration files. We always try to be very consistent in the way information is shown, and the wording is carefully chosen to be as clear as possible. There is a common effort involved multiple, involving mul multiple reviewers. Changes must be approved by at least one member of the team. When an OpenBSD program is modified, the man page must be updated accordingly. The pages are also occasionally updated to include more history explaining the origins of the commands. It's always very instructive. Yeah, it's always interesting to see the little like history section at the bottom that talks about where this command came from. I was looking at one just the other day and it turns out this command came from something built uh, by the Danish Aviation Authority for keeping a, a ring buffer of radio communications Ooh, interesting. and it just got included in FreeBSD because uh, apparently that system was built on that uh, and you know it's like oh this is turns out was useful for the ring buffer I wanted to create for TCP dump or whatever. Mm -hmm. Cool and uh, yeah when it comes to packages there's no guarantee as we just bundle upstream software they may not provide a man page however packages maintainers uh, offer a package-readme file for packages requiring very specific tuning these files can be found in user local share slash doc slash package-readmes all right then there's the website one way to distribute information related to OpenSD is the website, which explains what the project is about, or which hardware you can install it, why it exists, and what it provides. It has a lot of information, which are interesting, before you install OpenSD so they can't be in a man page. Then the FAQ. They chose to treat the frequently, FAQ, frequently asked questions, which stands for FAQ, as part of the website, as a different support for documentation. It's a special place that contains real-world use cases, while the man pages are the reference for programs or configuration. They lack the big-picture overview, like how to achieve XY on OpenBSD. The FAQ is particularly well-crafted. It has different categories, such as multimedia, visualization, and VPNs. Then there's... Yeah, and then, as we talked about examples, yeah. uh, so there's some ex example configuration files in etc slash examples, uh, which provide good example are uh, sample configurations of different things you might want to do. So if you want to configure your network a certain way, there's examples in there. And then as we described, most all man pages have an example section, which really can help you understand what it is you need to, to get started with the command, right? It's like, I, I can read about every switch, but the examples are like, if you want to do this, it's this part, and you only need these two switches, then I can scroll back up and read what those two switches do and understand it without having to know every one of the possible options considering that some programs will have quite a few. <coughs> There's also the commit history. Um, this is 
actively develop software. So it can be interesting to look at the history and see how things have changed and what's been happening and the logic behind a bunch of that. You can also subscribe to get announcements by email. The documentation is about keeping the users informed about important news. So OpenBSD has opt-in methods with their mailing list to get informed proactively when things change instead of having to go look for it. One interesting thing they note is that OpenBSD does not have a wiki. This is an important point in my opinion. All the OpenBSD documentation is stored in the source tree with the code and it must be committed by someone with commit access. The wiki often have orphan pages or outdated information and so on. By storing the documentation with the code, you know that that documentation goes with that version of the code. So if you check out an older version, you have the corresponding documentation. It doesn't mention some new flag that you that doesn't exist yet or something. Uh, whereas when you separate the documentation from the code, like in a wiki, it can very much get out of date or have contrary content or and so on. It just doesn't have the same authority either. Hmm. So in conclusion, what makes good documentation is kind of hard to tell. A lot of it is people putting in the effort to make that documentation. But having a trustful source of knowledge uh, can be very important, whatever the format or support that ends up being. If you can't trust what you read because it might be outdated or written by a non-expert, then it's hard to know what to rely on, what not to. Or, you know, this documentation is four years old. Does that mean it's fine? Nothing has changed about it in four years? I can keep using it? Or does it mean that I shouldn't use this and I should look for something newer? Yeah. That's always the question. And typically you only find out once you try implementing what they described there. So next up, we have uh, a post from Dan Langill about how I configured DMA, the Dragonfly Mail Agent, to do mail delivery in jails on my internet hosts. Uh, so this is based on a series of tweets, which he did as he was developing it. Uh, when I go searching for something I've done before, I usually check my blog first, so he noted it here. And that also means that anybody else who needs it can find it here uh, instead of having to go up into the ether. So DMA is a small mail transfer agent designed for home and office use. It accepts mail from locally installed mail user agents and delivers the mail either locally or to a remote destination. Remote delivery includes several features like TLS encryption and support for SMTP authentication. And it has a link to the man page if you want more information. I like it because the configuration for my needs is simple uh, and it comes in built into the base operating system so there's no extra software to install. So in this blog post, he's using FreeBSD 13.1. It's assumed that jail will be uh, relaying to a smarter host somewhere else to actually do the delivery. And in his case, the jail relays to the host itself. So he's got many jails that are all going to send it to the host who's going to go take care of the delivery. And only the host actually speaks to any outside mail servers. So in the jail, he configures etc slash dma slash dma.conf, and he just says smart host, uh, the host, the IP address of the host, which he has uh, on loopback 172.163.0.25, enables secure transfer and start TLS. Uh, so now in the etc slash mail slash mailer.conf, he configures uh, all the links for send mail, mail queue, new aliases, rmail, etc., to point to the DMA binary. So this tells the system to use DMA rather than send mail, postfix, or whatever else. Then he configures a cron tab entry uh, for DMA. Uh, so use local etc cron.d slash DMA, and he sets up it to run the DMA-Q command every 30 minutes. And then he disables all the other mail stuff on the system. Doesn't need postfix or anything installed, and tells send mail to turn off completely. 
Then when his jails send email, they get sent to his host where he runs Postfix and it can be delivered normally. That is surprisingly few steps to get something like this running. Exactly. Um, you could add a couple more lines and have it deliver mail by connecting to your Gmail account or something, mm -hmm. but it is quite straightforward and quite easy. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, I know, you know, FreeBSD has been looking at using DMA as a complete replacement for SendMail for a while. There are a few limitations having to do with like really long lines in an email or something that no one's gotten around to fixing yet. Uh, but I think we're pretty close to the day when this setup will basically be the default uh, instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you heard it at Dan's blog first. Uh, <laughs> it's nice. He closes with job done, time for more beach. Excellent. Um, let's go to the next item here, introducing MuxFS. What is that? Well, it's a mirroring, checksumming, and self-healing file system layer for OpenBSD. Hey, that sounds interesting. Uh, the problem here is data corruption. I think we've covered this many times when we talked about ZFS and friends. So this is another file system that's not ZFS, that's trying to get uh, rid of these problems, like bit rot and uh, things that appear to be different when you read it next time. And so uh, checking and repairing data is always uh, a thing. So solution, they consider hardware RAID and soft RAID. So there's plenty of discussions on the internet concerning the viability of RAID as a bit rot mitigation tool. So they will not go into much detail here. But for the unaware, they suggest to at least read up on the term write whole. Yeah, more expensive RAID cards can address such issues, but might simply shift the problem over to the additional maintenance burden of checking and replacing the on-card batteries. OpenBSD soft RAID is close to a solution to the problem, but we can see the following from the manual page. The driver relies on underlying hardware to properly fail chunks. Hmm. Currently, there is no automated mechanism to recover from failed disks, and certain RAID levels can protect against some data loss due to component failure. Note that the data protected from loss is qualified as SOM. There is also no mention of support for a journal device that would be needed to address the write hole. And so uh, they talk a little bit more about bit rot and uh, problems there. So now they talk about MuxFS. MuxFS is um, something that they needed that was not only automatic, but immediate, intercepting the data in memory while its integrity could still be assured by ECC. It was clear that they needed a file system driver. After careful consideration, they decided they would be wiser to write its first implementation as a fuse file system. MuxFS proves itself as the Fuse implementation can serve as a stepping stone towards a more efficient in-kernel file system driver. Having uh, read through the UFS and FFS file uh, server driver code, they were inspired not to reinvent the wheel, rather to make use of those drivers indirectly. They chose to use directories as storage media instead of writing directly to block devices. This way, source code is not duplicated and MuxFS gets the benefit of the many years of development and testing that have gone into whatever file system the user places at these directory locations. Uh-huh. Uh, it was now obvious that to get data redundancy, they could simply feed writes coming into the MuxFS driver across to multiple directories. If the user wants to spread the data across multiple disks, that would now be something they are in control of. In fact, if the user wanted to diversify the storage as a hedge against unforeseen technical faults, then they could simultaneously mirror the two HDDs and SSDs, each containing a variety of file system types. Huh, okay. 
And they decided they want both uh, content and metadata to be checksum. So the checksum of the content is to be considered part of the checksum metadata. And checksums to be linked from content to metadata all the way up to the metadata checksum to the root directory. This means that the roots directory metadata checksum is representative of the whole file system tree contained inside that root directory. Yeah, that's one of the things uh, that Zedip makes ZFS different is the checksum of the data is not stored with the data, but with the, the block pointer that points to the data, which is stored somewhere else. And this way, uh, if there is a bit flip or something, it can't also take out the checksum mm. or cause the wrong checksum. Yeah, and that's how ZFS detects even small bit flips. Right, and we'll end the fact that that indirect block is pointed to by another block up the tree means we can tell if the checksum and the data don't match, we know which one is wrong. Mm. Uh, because if the checksum of the block that contains the checksum is wrong, then we don't even look at the wrong checksum. Uh, and the metadata is often stored in multiple copies so that if one gets bit flipped, we still have another one. Uh, whereas the data, we don't do that because by default, because uh, it would take too much space. But in MuxFS, it, it does sound basically what they're implementing is ZFS copies equals two. Uh, except for more strictly enforcing that those go to two different uh, backing devices. Whereas ZFS will do that best effort, but doesn't guarantee it, even though what ZFS provides this redundancy elsewhere anyway. Mm -hmm. So what follows is a tutorial about MuxFS storage array with a big caution message is not yet considered stable MuxFS. Before you run these commands on your own system, read the entire article, most importantly, the section MuxFS needs you. So this is work in progress, but the tutorial is quite uh, detailed about, you know, showing what it can do and also trying out certain scenarios with, of course, a lot of warnings, irrecoverable data loss could happen. Uh, but it seems like they could do a lot of these scenarios with backups and restoration that are uh, very useful to users wanting to have a redundant checksumming uh, solution in the file system that is also self-healing in OpenBSD land. Yep. Uh, so they start by downloading the archive and it's SHA-512, comparing the SHA-512, ensuring it's okay, and then extracting the source code compiling and installing that. And then if you check where is MuxFS, you should see you have a MuxFS command in user local SBIN. Um, they check the version, make sure it's good, point out the man page, and then uh, all they have to do is create a varlog MuxFS log file and get that set up. Added to their syslog.conf, get syslog restarted. Uh, and then they look at how many disks they have and what they are, and they start going through setting that up. So they use fdisk to set up the disks, and they use disk label to create the partitions, and they newfs both disk one and disk two. And in this case, they did ffs on both, although you could use something else if you wanted. Uh, and then they created their directories, var muxfs a and b, uh, check the permissions on those, and then it's just a matter of adding the lines to their fs tab saying, you know, these are the two MuxFS directories we want to mount. Uh, once those are mounted, you'll see that the first disk is mounted to MuxFS slash A and the second one to MuxFS slash B. Uh, now we have to create a MuxFS array. So they do MuxFS format. In this case, they're using uh, an MD5 because it's smaller for the checksum. And then they're combining these two directories. And they will now have uh, 
a new file system and they're going to mount that to slash mnt slash storage. So they do muxfs mount that directory and point it to their two FFS partitions they created. And they write a file to it, sync it out. And now when they look, they see there's a .muxfs file with some metadata in it. And the file they just wrote out, example line of text, exists in both uh, the A and B directories, uh, which are then stored on two independent hard drives. So if one of them dies, we still have all the data. <clears throat> or if one of them corrupts it, we have a checksum which we can use to figure out which of the two disks is wrong and do the right thing. Whereas a hardware RAID mirror wouldn't know which one is right and which one is wrong and would just pick one, possibly the wrong one, and correct the other one to match. Which now you've just overwritten the only good copy of the file you had with a bad copy. Hmm. Oops. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so then they purposely create some corruption by writing bad data to the... Uh, muxfs slash a slash test.txt file so that when they go to read it it'll differ uh, so when they try to read mount storage test.txt they get back the correct one example line of text and you can see in the log file that it detected it was wrong and it was restoring uh, the test.txt file and when they're done they can unmount uh, this could also be used uh, with something else where the second disk or a third if you're doing it that way could be nfs or something to another machine uh and that way you would have uh your local redundancy and some remote redundancy. yeah over the network cool yep um they also talk uh they have a muxfs sync command uh which they can use to back things up uh so um there's that uh and then they have the audit command to go check for everything and a heal command to explicitly go through and fix anything mm -hmm. and then as i mentioned before muxfs needs you uh so currently no file system can be considered stable without going through testing and muxfs is no exception to that even if i had tested muxfs enough to call it stable it would still not uh be responsible to expect you to simply take my word for it and for that reason i uh, don't intend to release a version 1.0 until a bunch of other people have tested it as well uh, this is where you can help. You need volunteers to test it, provide feedback, uh, you know, periodic publish uh, their test results, the types of things we need to know, like how easy is it to use? Is the documentation clear? Does it have all the needed features? Is there additional things it should have? Do you see bugs? Is there performance problems? Are there security issues, etc.? Try to be creative in your approach to testing. Uh, the more angles we approach it from, the more stable it will become. And so we don't recommend using it on a machine containing sensitive data or with privileged access to other systems, you know, it's meant for a dedicated physical or virtual machine for testing. And it may still have bugs uh, and currently expects to run as root. Uh, haven't got around to applying pledge and unveil yet. Uh, so you probably want to be careful with that. Yep. And they've also uh, enabled the discussion feature on the GitHub mirror uh, and they have an IRC channel and so on. Cool. That seems like, uh, I wouldn't say poor man's ZFS, but at least something they could build on and provide similar functionality. Uh, we stay a little bit more in the uh, RAID land, if you want to call it that. Uh, we have RAID 1C boot support added to 
OpenBSD in the OpenBSD journal. You may know all your RAID levels, but maybe RAID 1C may be a bit new for you. So Stefan Sperling has committed support for RAID 1C, which is mirroring and encryption boot uh, support to current on the AME64 platform. Uh, log message is uh, pretty straightforward. Add support for booting from RAID 1C soft RAID volumes on AMD64. Only load, uh, bootloader changes are needed. Both install boot and the kernel already do what is required to make this work. Uh, support for, uh, on the ARM64 platform can be expected soon. There's a link to that. Probably they have it by now. Uh, great work, Stefan and Clemens and everyone else involved. Yeah, uh, so RAID 1C is basically mirroring and encryption. It encrypts the data to provide for data confidentiality and then copies the encrypted data across more than one chunk to prevent data loss in the case of a chunk failure. Unlike traditional RAID 1, soft RAID uh, driver on OpenBSD supports the use of more than two chunks in a RAID 1C setup. So you can do like a three-way mirror and so on. Well, that's right, OpenBSD's alley. So definitely good to have. Uh, speaking of something good to have, we love getting feedback from you or questions to our email address, feedback at bsdnow.tv. And over time, we collect them. I know it was summer and a lot of people were on holidays. So we didn't get as many, but here we have at least one uh, from Oliver. So this is what we're going to read to you today. It's about a shell tip and we like those. So here we go. Uh, Oliver writes, in the latest episode, Alan says that the biggest thing he misses from TCSH when going to other shells is the up cursor searching based on what is already on the command line. For ZSH, try binding the up cursor to history begin search backward. I think that works similarly to the CCSH. Personally, I don't like how it positions the cursor at the end of the line. There's also an upline or search widget, but that only searches based on the first word. This being ZSH, it is possible to program the key to match any particular preference. In this case, ZSH comes with some existing widgets written as shell functions, including one up, uh, one named upline or beginning search, which is close to what I use. Enabling it would be something like the following. It provides the whole autoload line for us. Alan's second comment was about sometimes only wanting history from the local terminal, but also sometimes finding the shared history useful. There is a set local history widget that allows you to bind a key to toggle between local and imported lines. So rather than toggle between, uh, they or Oliver binds control P or control N to go up and down in local history only and provides the line for that as well. Thanks for that. Cool. That, uh -huh. that will be useful. Yeah. And that mostly works for him in the cases when he knows he wants local history and control P or N or already is familiar. There are TCSH and KSH defaults. Uh, and oh, my ZSH may have other plugins, but I don't use it. Feel free to contact me with ZSH questions if any other things bother you. Okay, nice. Or if any of this is unclear, thanks for the great podcast. Oh, thank you, Oliver. That is certainly something we will happily uh, yeah, pass on and use ourselves. Yeah, I, uh, I have to tweak my ZSHRC file a little bit because uh, it does sound like it can do exactly what I want if I just tell it what I want. Mm. Yeah, I'm not, I mean, a lot of people love Oh My ZSH, like, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But for me, it's kind um, of big and bloated. I, I turned a bunch of things off because having it try to run git status every time I CD into a FreeBSD git repo, yeah. of which I have many and of which they are very large. Uh, have, like the worst thing I, that any shell can do is take a long time to return the shell prompt to me. Yeah. Because uh, 
mostly because that's usually a sign that something's very wrong with the machine. In this case, it wasn't. It was just that it was running git status on, you know, a massive repo. Like my git repo had, that checkout had the full FreeBSD history twice, the old hashes and the new hashes for swapping things back and forth and so on. And then it had like 20 uh, work trees as well. So it, it's actually 20 checkouts of FreeBSD sharing one Git directory. Uh, and so running Git status on it takes a while. Yeah, yeah. And I don't want it to do that every time I CD into the directory. Yeah, and I typically like to do my own config files and know what they are doing each line. So I mm -hmm. comment each one as I do. And so a big one that is given to me by someone else, as good as it may be, is still half of it I don't understand. Yeah, I think like my TCSHRC file is more than 15 years old, probably just shy of 20 years old. And I think I've only changed one thing in it in that 20 years, which is at some point when I switched from Pico to Nano. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've changed anything else in that TCSHRC file in that 20 years. Yeah, once you become familiar with some things, you never want to change them. <laughs> Okay, that uh, pretty much wraps up this episode. Hopefully you liked it and let us know about this at feedback at bsdnow.tv and we'll be back with another episode next week. 